Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, good morning, church. So with this being Promotion Sunday, we, by God's grace, we've been able to open a new classroom. And so we've got a couple of classrooms of kiddos in the room with us this morning. And so as we dismiss them today, I want to dismiss them by classrooms so they know where they're going uh, whenever they leave this space. And so in the back of the room is Miss Brooke and Miss Eve and Miss Laquandra. Uh, I believe they're going to be in the primary classroom this morning, and the primary classroom is for our kindergartners and first graders. And so if you're in kindergarten or first grade and you're going to class this morning, I want you to go ahead and stand up and slowly make your way to the back. There you go. You can follow Miss Brooke and Miss Laquandra and Miss Eve to the classroom down the hall where you guys are going to be this morning. Good deal. Now, if you are in, what's left? Second, third, or fourth grade, why don't you guys go ahead and stand up. And Mr. Trevor and Miss Michelle Rester in the back of the room. You can follow them to your classroom this morning. That was super simple, wasn't it? So easy. Yes, Keith, thank you for leading us in prayer for our students and kids ministry workers. And I just want to say a word of affirmation for them from myself. So grateful for the work they do every single Sunday of taking truths from God's word, depositing it into lives. It's kind of like stacking wood and then trusting God's going to light the flame um, and bring them to faith. And so we continue to pray for that. Uh, If you're a guest with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us today. Uh, If you, when you came in, you should have found a card that looks uh, just like this one, uh, somewhere around you where you're seated. On one side of that's a place for some information about yourself. The other side of that's a place for prayer requests. So if there are things we can pray with or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. Uh, You can, if you fill out one of these cards and leave some information, we'll send you some information about us. Uh, There's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out or you can access the same forms on the homepage of our website just by scanning the QR code on the chair back in front of you. You can access those forms uh, from our website. Uh, If you got a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today as we continue to journey uh, through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Colossae in this series entitled Enough, looking at the sufficiency of Christ in our everyday lives. And this morning we're in Colossians chapter 3 verses 17 to 19, the text that we looked at last week from one angle, we're going to look at from a different angle this morning. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 17 to 19, if you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, you can follow along as I read it for our hearing this morning. In Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes these words, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is God's word. 
Over the years, it's happened to me on several occasions, and I imagine maybe it's happened to you once or twice as well, but whenever you pull into a gas station uh, and you're looking at the gas pumps and you're trying to get a feel for where there's an open space for you to go refuel your vehicle, and you see one pump open out of all the stalls that are there, and so you like make a beeline for that gas pump, right? You see somebody else coming from the other corner of the parking lot, and you accelerate a little faster so you can whip in right there and get in front of them so that you can and get in and out of the gas station a little faster. And so in your expediency, uh, you pull in and you step out of the vehicle and you go back and you open the gas cap and you get it ready to dispense fuel and then you put your card into the reader and then you notice below you there is a red bag hanging on the actual pump that you did not see in your expediency earlier. And on that red bag it says something like out of order right, or out of service, because that pump is not working. That's so frustrating to me. If I had more keen powers of observation, then maybe I would have recognized it before I made a beeline to pull into that stall, and I would have just gently pulled in line behind another vehicle and waited my turn. But it's so frustrating, because when something's out of order, it's not working properly. It's not working as it should, and listen, in Colossians chapter 3, in the, these latter, this latter part of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul begins to, I think, give us an outline or a template for how the home is supposed to operate under the Lordship of Christ. And I would say this this morning, that an out-of-order marriage and home life is not working like God has designed, and as a result, it's not in service of His glory. An out-of-order marriage, in particular this morning we want to talk about, is not working like God has designed and is not in service of His glory. Now in these verses, we're still in this household code that we started looking at last week where Paul takes the principle that he lays out in verse 17 about doing everything that we do, whatever we do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, and then he begins to press it into... The home, because putting on the new self that we read about earlier in chapter 3, in action, it starts at home. It starts at home. I love the way the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it. He said, putting the life of the new age into practice begins at home. If a sense of anticlimax is felt on moving from the picture of the worshiping church in 3.15 to 17 to the almost mundane instructions of 3.18 to 4.1, then it's perhaps a sign that we have not fully integrated belief in practice. It's clear from the numerous parallels to this section in other early Christian literature that the early church took seriously the necessity of living Christianly in the place, listen to the way he describes it, in the place, in the home, where for better or worse, one is truly oneself. And these short sentences focus on just that, how to be truly oneself in the Lord as a member of the new humanity. And if the home is to be a means of grace, a place, it must be, he says, a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. And then he says this, as an, as an, as an improvised music, spontaneity and freedom do not mean playing out of tune. All right, if you've ever listened to like a great jazz band, 
Okay, right, they go and they improvise all kinds of solos. The drummers improvise, the bassist improvise, the, the guitar player improvises, uh, the, 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 the horns improvise, but they're never playing out of tune. They're never playing notes that are, not, that are dissonant with or not in accordance with, harmonious with the other notes that are being produced by the other instruments. See, to have freedom, there must be order. The absence of order, he says, is really just a place where the most selfish individual can reign as a tyrant. And so last week, we looked at the role of husbands in the home and Paul's command for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. And this week, we turn to the role of the wife and take a look at, 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 this, at this reality that if wives are to be a part of putting our marriage and home life back in service to the glory of God, like we talked about husbands doing last week, and in service of God's glory, then wives, listen, we have to learn to recover the beauty of God's command here in this passage. Now, I, I, I don't know if you've ever visited like an old home, like a home, that, when I say old home, not one built in the 80s. I'm talking about one built like back 100 years ago, okay? Um, but visit some of these older homes that have all this architectural detail that are embedded within them, all the woodwork and everything. And sometimes when you walk into some of those older homes that haven't been maintained very well over the course of, say, a century or more, you might walk into the foyer and you begin to look around and notice, you know, the stains on the wall or the, the dirt on the floor or the chips and paint in certain places or the indentations in some of the wood where, you know, at some point a kid threw a baseball, okay? Right? So you notice all some of these, these kind of imperfections and the dirt and the stains and you might say something like this, right? This house, though it is worse for the wear, it has great what? Bones, right? Though it's worse for wear, it's got good bones, because of the architecture and the, the solid foundation that it's sitting on. And I, I think that with regards to this understanding of submission that we read in verse 18, I want to say this, that that command that God gives, it has good bones, but it's worse for the wear in our particular day because of the way that our culture has misunderstood the concept of submission. See, the verb translated submit in the Greek, it carries the implication of voluntary yieldedness to a recognized order or leadership. Now, the reason I say that it's voluntary, listen, some of you are like, ah, oh, that's where you're getting around this, right? The reason I say this is voluntary is not just because it's what I want it to mean. Okay? There's a, there's a lot of people who might get up on a Sunday in a pulpit and say what they want the text to mean. But that's not why I'm saying this. Nor am I just afraid of the backlash and the emails and the, 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 the laser-like stares, right? If, 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 if I said something, that I said, if I said it was involuntary. But the reason I say it's voluntary is found in the grammar, okay? Now listen, some of you know I get a little geeky about this stuff. And so here we go. In the New Testament Greek, there are three voices of verbs, you have active verbs. Active verbs are verbs that indicate an action that you are doing to or for someone or something else. You also have passive verbs. Passive verbs are verbs that describe action that's being done to you by someone or something else. But you also have verbs that are in the middle voice. And the middle voice is, well, it's like in the middle, okay? Okay. 
Because the middle voice describes an action that's being done by you, but it's also being done to you. It's something that you are doing to or for yourself. And the verb for submit in this passage, just like most of the other usages, when it shows up in New Testament Greek, shows up in the middle voice. And the middle voice in Greek is often used to describe a voluntary action. Something that you're doing, you're doing to or for yourself out of a voluntary nature or for a voluntary basis. And then consider a few other ways this idea of voluntarily putting yourself under the order or direction of someone or something else shows up in the New Testament. It shows up all over the place. It shows up in reference to all believers to God in Hebrews chapter 12 and James chapter 4. It shows up in relationship to being submitted to under God's law in Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Or the church submitting to Christ in Ephesians 5. Or Jews submitting to God's righteousness in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 10. Or humans submitting to the governing authorities in Romans 13 and Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2. To Christians submitting to their leaders in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Slaves to their masters in Titus 2, 1 Peter 2. Young men to older men, children to parents, and wives to their husbands. So this idea of submission, listen, it's not unique to the husband and wife relationship as Paul describes it here, but it's carried out voluntarily in all sorts of ways, in all types of human relationships. All these horizontal human relationships that we have right, involve to some degree a level of voluntary submission to the order that God has established. Now, if we're going to recover the beauty of this command, right? It's got good bones, right? But if we're going to recover the beauty of it, then I think that we have to begin to strip away and consider why it's worse for the wear in our culture and strip away some of the stains and some of the dirt and some of the dents. And to do so, I want to start by telling you what submission is not before I tell you what it is. And I got nine things that it's not. So you're like, oh boy. <laughs> nine things. We're going to go quick though. First of all, Submission is not universal. And what I mean by that is it's not talking about every woman submitting to every man. It's not that. Rather, it's talking about a specific relationship, an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Second, it's not demeaning. So that submission doesn't indicate anything of, about an individual's worth or value. See, submission is not grounded in any supposed superiority of the husband or inferiority of the wife. Oftentimes people may feel that way because they look back at Genesis chapter 2 and they see that the woman was created from the side, the rib of the man, to be a helpmate, sufficient for him, suitable for him. And they think that word helper implies a degree of inferiority. When in fact, that word helper in the Hebrew shows up most frequently in the Old Testament to describe God as the helper of Israel. And in no way, shape, or form is God as our helper inferior to us. So it's not demeaning. It doesn't speak to the worth or the value of an individual. So if you go back to the helper passage, that passage doesn't mean that the husband is superior, the wife is inferior. Rather, it's talking about the fact that even before the entrance of sin into the world, 
that the man that God had made, he was not going to be able to fulfill God's full intentions for him without the help of the woman that he forms from the rib. Without relationship with her, her input, her support, and her help. He would never be what God intended him to be. In addition, listen, we have to understand that having just distinct roles in the context of a relationship does not mean that one is more valuable than the other. I want you to consider all the ways this works in our human relationships, right? A supervisor in your job is equal in person. They are no more valuable, have no more dignity, are worthy of no more respect than you, but they have a different role from you. The same is true with a professor in relationship to their students or your child's friends, right? They're equal in person, but they have a distinct role in your child's life more than, than you do, right? Or a pastor to their parishioners, right? This is all over our human experience. We're all equal persons and distinct in roles, but perhaps the highest place that you see this is not in our horizontal human relationships, but in the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead Himself. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal persons. There is not one that is superior to another or one that is inferior to the other two. Rather, they all deserve our adoration. They all deserve our devotion and our veneration. Each one is co-equal from eternity. What that means is there was never a time that the Father did not exist, never a time in which the Son did not exist, never a time in which the Spirit did not exist. They all three have co-equally existed from before the foundations of the world in unity, love, and equality. And yet when you read the New Testament, you see that each of the persons of the Godhead have a distinct function in the outworking of God's salvation plan. You can't miss it when you read Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1, it's the Father who loves and chooses and predestines. In Ephesians chapter 1, it is the Son who is sent to suffer, die, and rise to procure the redemption of God's people. In Ephesians chapter 1, it is the Holy Spirit who is given to seal, guarantee what God has begun in the work of a believer. Right? And so the Spirit also throughout the New Testament comforts and He convicts. The Son teaches So you have all of these distinct roles, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, co-equal in love, unity, and equality. So listen, submission, that the Son submits to the Father's will and is sent by the Father does not demean the value or the worth of the Son. The fact that the Spirit proceeds from the two, does not diminish the worth or the value of the Spirit. They are co-equal. So submission is not demeaning. Third, submission is not slavish. Listen, biblical submission will not allow a woman who fears the Lord to follow a foolish man into sin. Submission doesn't mean that a wife is obligated to follow her husband's ways in ways that don't align with Scripture as he tries to lead in the home. See, the biblical principle that we owe obedience to God first and foremost, above all and beyond all, trumps any other loyalty or allegiance that we have. 
See, if I can illustrate it to you this way, in Acts chapter 5, if the, the apostles faced this choice between obeying God and obeying man. Right? Do I obey God or do I obey the state, the governing authorities? Well, when those two come into conflict with each other, right? when the state is telling you to do one thing and God is telling you to do another, then who do you obey? You obey God. Right? And the same would be true in relationship to marriage. If a, if a wife ever had to choose between submitting to God or submitting to the leadership of her husband, if there was a conflict between those two, then the wife should never follow a husband into sin. So it's not like she is his servant or his slave just following him wherever he goes and obeying his commands. That is not biblical submission. Fourth, submission is not spineless. It's not spineless. Submission is not the lack of opinions about what's next or what is best in a given set of circumstances or situation. See, a submission doesn't mean that the wife must suppress her opinions or her thoughts or her creative energy or adopt this, this general passive approach to life. That's not at all what it is. You, all you have to do is look at Proverbs 31 and see the, the, the godly woman who is extolled there and see her initiative, her creativity, her industry, the, the, the initiative that she's taking to go out into the world. Listen, there's no biblically prescribed personality for wives, right? There's nowhere in the text that it says a wife must have this particular personality or vice versa, that a husband must have a particular personality, Right? So rather, a husband can, who is an introvert can lead in the home and a wife who is an extrovert, right, and work in the room, right, she can come under that leadership as well, right, because so, there's no prescribed personality and it's not spineless. Fifth, it's not silence. See, many mistakenly think a wife is not submissive as she ever, one, criticizes her husband constructively, in a loving way, or two, makes requests of him, in particular that her husband and family act responsibly in like private and public settings, right? That he not be a knucklehead. (laughs) Or that she ever teaches her husband. Some people will say that she's not being submissive. Listen, the reality is that most of you men who have godly wives, you know you've probably learned more from them over the course of the years than you've learned from anybody else in your life. They've taught you things. And you would not be the man you are today without their influence in your life. So the fact that she has something to teach you doesn't mean that she's not submissive. The fact that she at times critiques you doesn't mean that she's not submissive. Sixth, submission is not obedience. Now, let me unpack this for a moment. First, you've got to recognize that there's a significant difference in the household code, the way it's meted out here in the text. And Paul says to the wives, submit to their husbands, but to children and slaves, he says, obey. There's a different type of relationship between a parent and a child or a master and a servant than there is between a husband and a wife. Listen, obedience naturally fits a situation in which orders are being issued and in which the party obeying has little choice in the matter. If I tell my four-year-old to go pick up their room, right, we don't enter into a negotiation, okay? 
there's not a degree of compromise there, right? Go clean up all the toys that you scattered across the living room, okay? That's not a negotiation. That's a, a command that's been issued, an order that's been given, right? If your boss tells you to show up at work at 8 a.m. and clock in, right, that's probably not a negotiable thing to enter, engage in discussion about. That's an edict, that's an order, a command that's being issued. But there's a very different reality operating between husbands and wives than there is between servants and masters and parents and children, See, submission to any human, I believe, is always conditioned by the ultimate submission that every believer owes to God. In any hierarchy we can imagine, God stands at the top of the chart, right? And so again, this means that a wife may at times have to, if her husband asks her to do something, right, that either A, she is not comfortable with, or B, that is a violation of God's commands, she has the right and responsibility to say no. Seventh, it's not codependency. See, submission does not mean that everything a wife does must be directly dependent upon or connected to her husband. Doesn't mean that the wife can never do anything for her own benefit. Doesn't mean that she can never do anything for the benefit of others or that she has to always be involved in every activity or every ministry or every hobby that her husband is involved in, that she cannot have her own life. It's not codependency. Eighth, we're getting close to the end. Eighth, it's not unconditional. The submission of a wife to her husband is inevitably and necessarily conditioned significantly by the demand that husbands love their wives. See, a part, one of the reasons I believe that there are so many misconceptions around this concept of submission within our culture is because people believe that it's been, and at times it has been, hijacked and used right, to either promote, condone, or overlook depending upon what layer of or level of complicity you want to assign, promote, condone, or overlook abuse. But listen, in the text, there's a reason on the heels of him saying, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We looked at that in detail last week. Go back and listen to that message if you missed it. So what I'll say with regards to it not being unconditional is, that, is this, that the submission is not cowering under the hand of a controlling and insecure man. And the ninth, it's not uniform. And what I mean by that is submission may take different forms in different cultures. See, Paul's was a patriarchal culture in which a man, the husband of a wife, father of the child, master of the slaves, he ruled the household, right? His word was law in the home. And the New Testament, listen, it certainly, it, it doesn't necessarily undermine what was taking place in the culture, but rather it redeems it. And it redeems it by emphasizing the, what, what we might see in the New Testament as the teaching about the oneness of all in Christ. Coupled with the demand to husbands love their wives and wives submit to their husbands. Like all of us are one in Christ. 
Right? That is where the equality of persons comes from. And yet there are roles still in order within that oneness. This new self doesn't deconstruct order, but it upholds it and redeems it. So it's not uniform, right? In, in, in some more traditional cultures in the East, right? It looks, still looks very patriarchal. The husband still rules the home and his word is law. Families that leave that context and they come into the West and they're like, what's going on here, right? And families that leave the West and they go into the East are like, what is going on here? And so submission at times may look different in different cultures. It's not uniform, it's not unconditional, it's not codependent, it's not obedience as we think of the term obey. It's not silence, it's not spineless, it's not slaveless, it's not demeaning, and it's not universal. You're like, that's great, but what is it? <laughs> That's a great question. So now that we've seen what it's not, let's, let me try to tease out in the time that we have remaining what it is. And the way I would define submission is as follows. Submission is a way, not the only way, but a way. A wife glorifies Jesus by honoring her husband, helping her husband, and hoping for her husband. First, submission is fundamentally about the glory of Christ. As we saw last week, it's no coincidence that the command for wives to submit to their husbands comes right on the heels of verse 17 where Paul has just said, whatever you do, word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father. In other words, every word that comes out of your mouth, every action that proceeds from your body, everything that you do, including all the words that are spoken and all the deeds that are done in the most intimate of human relationships between a husband and wife, everything that you do, whatever you do, do it for the glory of Jesus in his name. So ultimately then, submission for wives doesn't terminate on their husbands. Like we said last week, loving their wives for the husband doesn't terminate on their wife. Ultimately, it terminates on the Lord. It's not for you, you, women. You don't submit to, to husbands for their sake. You submit to husbands for the Lord's sake because it's something that he has ordered in the scriptures. See, a husband lives out his faith in the home by loving his wife, laying his life down for her, right? We said last week, by growing up, putting childish ways behind him, serving and sacrificing, being selfless and oriented himself to her needs. It's a way that a husband lives out his faith in the home and a wife lives out her faith in the home by submitting to that leadership of her husband, and in fact, Paul goes on, he says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now, what does that mean, as is fitting in the Lord? Listen, here's, here's how I think we ought to understand that. That, she, that wives are called to submit, not because it was necessary for the order of society outside the church. As those secular household, household, it's hard to say that word, household codes informed, Right? It's not because it's the way it was done out there. Nor was it only because it was appropriate at that time, in that place, and in that culture, but because it's the kind of behavior, Paul says, that's fitting to those who live in the sphere of the Lord. That's what that word as fitting in the Lord. In other words, those who are living under the lordship of Christ, those who are citizens of God's kingdom, those who have come to faith in Jesus, place their confidence in him, and they're aiming to bring all of their life for the rest of their life under his lordship and leadership. It's fitting for them 
to exercise this type of submission. As a result, that command then is valid not just in a culture or a place, but in all places and at all times. And so, wives, you're aiming, like I said last week, husbands, you're aiming at the glory of Jesus in the way you love your wife. And wives, you're aiming at the glory of Jesus in the way that you submit to your husband. So what does that look like? Let me give you three things. First, I believe it looks like honoring your husband. Honoring your husband. If you think of it this way, submission is a disposition. You know what a disposition, that's a big word, right? What's a disposition? It's a state of readiness. It's like a reflex, like an inclination of the heart or a tendency to act in a particular way, a mindset. It's like the grain of your life is running in this direction. It's a disposition to honor, affirm, and celebrate a husband's leadership. Now, honor in the scriptures, it involves esteeming someone's true value, not their perceived value. And listen, if one thing has become clear over the course of the last, I don't know, 30 years in our culture, is that the value of men within the life of our culture has been woefully low. And that message has been reinforced through media, through movies, through television shows, in which the only thing that men are good for is, a, is comedic relief. Because <laughs> they're always doing something stupid. They're always acting a fool. That's how our culture perceives the value of men. And I I think one of the reasons is that way is because our culture believes that for one to be lifted up, another has to be put down. All right, and, and so you, you come through the, the 1950s and the 1960s and, and women's suffrage, the right, they, they get you know, citizenship in the early 1900s, right to vote, own land, all those kinds of things. But as, as, as their equality was recognized, then I believe in that wave of, you might email me, but in that wave of feminism that began to rise out of that, which all those things were right and good and true, but in the wave of feminism that rose out of that, there was the belief that in order for women to continue to be elevated, men had to be pushed down. But the reality in the scriptures says something completely contrary, that both men and women ought to be lifted up in inherent dignity and respect and honor. And a part of submitting to your husband is recognizing that he is at least in some ways, shapes, and forms worthy of the value that God places upon him as a man, as a husband, as a leader in the home. I find it interesting in Genesis chapter 3, whenever our first parents fall into sin, you know, and everybody, everybody always looks at Eve. She's the one who takes the fruit and she gives it to the man and he eats. But when God comes knocking on the door, who does he ask for? Adam, where are you? Where are you? He goes straight to, to, to Adam as the leader of the home, as the leader of his family. So ladies, will you honor your husbands as such? Listen, it means you don't treat him as if he can do nothing without you, okay? It means you don't speak 
of him that way. Rather, you speak of him as if there are many things that he excels in. You affirm those things. You recognize the value of those things. And then you say, hey, I can, I've, I, I can fill in the gaps in complementary ways with these things that God has gifted me with. And so wives, how can you honor your husband? What is there about him and the way that he sacrifices and the way that he serves and the way that he loves that you can lift up and celebrate? What is it about the way that he protects your family and provides for your family that you can rejoice in and honor him? How can you speak well of him? Not only in private, but also in public. And not only in public, but also in private. Second, I believe submission involves helping your husband. This means that you voluntarily sign up to support your husband in such a way that he can be all that God intends him to be as the leader in the home. Again, this doesn't mean that you don't ever have any input, right? Did I spend enough time talking about what it wasn't? Okay, I think so. But that you voluntarily sign up to be a support in the home as he engages in godly initiatives. That would be the hope, right? That the husband, as the leader of the home, would engage in godly initiatives and the wife wouldn't, wouldn't be pushing back against those things, but would be supporting those things. It would be like a f- small fire burning in his soul and she's fanning the flame of his leadership in the home and helping him. Helping according to her natural abilities. Helping according to her acquired skills. Helping according to her spiritual gifts. So, ladies, will you submit to the, this God-ordained role, listen, of strong, strong, complimentary helper in your marriage. And a firm, not weak helper, strong helper. And affirm and honor and nurture godly leadership from your husband. Help him be an active participant in those initiatives that he launches that would serve to the glory of God and the good of your family in your home. How can you help carry those things out? How has God gifted you to be a part of that as a helper? And then third, I think submission also looks like hoping for your husband. And notice I didn't say hoping in your husband. There's only one man you are to hope in. And he's not the man you're married to. <laughs> At least not in this life. His name is Jesus. Hope in him. But you also ought to hope for your husband. See, as a part of honoring and affirming and embracing his leadership, you should have a hopes for him. Because we all have hopes for those that we love, don't we? We have hopes for people in our lives. If you're a parent, you have hope for your children. At least I hope you do. Right? You say, I want my kids to grow up to be holy and healthy and happy. It's what I hope for them. That they would walk with God. And that He would give them many days on the earth. And that they would enjoy His blessings. You have hopes for them. 
We have hopes for our parents. They may enjoy long days and see the goodness of God even in their advanced years in the land of the living. We have hopes for them. We have hopes for our friends that they would enjoy the blessing of God even in the face of their trials and their hardships and their distress that they would know God and walk with Him in the midst of those. So ladies, what, are your, what do you hope for for your husband? What blessing of God do you hope for in his life? Now this may or may not take the form of a list (laughs) of honeydews. But there should be things that you say, you know what? I can celebrate this about his character. And enjoy that about his leadership. But I can also critique this about his character and hope that God would be gracious to grow him in that area. Just like he's working on me, he's working on him. And I haven't given up hope that he's finished. So submission is this disposition this, this like, it's the grain of your life. It's the, like the reflex when you're, whenever you, somebody hits you in the knee and it kicks out, right? Kicks them in the face. It's like the reflex of, a, of the heart that puts a marriage, at least, ladies, that, that, that's the part that you play in putting a marriage back in service to the glory of God. It's honoring your husband, helping your husband, and hoping for your husband. And so this morning, I just ask the couples in the room, I know there may be some single adults here, and as I said last week, right, most of you who are single aspire to marriage one day, and so no better time to begin to prepare for that than today. But I want to ask the couples in the room this question this morning. If you take into consideration the message last week and this week, I want you to ask yourself, This question, is my marriage out of order? Is it not in service of God's glory? If it is, I want to encourage you today to commit to doing the necessary work to recover the beauty of God's commands. Wives submit husband's love to God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard truths at times to palate in our culture because of so many of the misconceptions and misunderstandings and misappropriations of them. But I pray you help us cut to the heart of what they are. I pray that you would raise up in Redeemer Church men who put their childish ways behind them and set the needs of their wives and their families ahead of their own wants. Father, I pray you'd raise up men who are willing to serve and sacrifice and lavish love upon their wives and be gentle with them. And I pray that as they step forward and by your grace, trusting 
and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to make them into that kind of man. To be a good man. I pray that their wives would see that, they would affirm that, they would honor that, they would help in that, and they would continue to hold out hope that you are not done working in their marriage to your glory and their good. And as their husband steps forward with good and godly initiatives, they would say, how can I help? And when their wives are struggling under the weight of everyday life, I pray that husbands would lean in and say, how can I help? I pray, Father, for your glory and our good. You would help us to embrace these commands in all of their fullness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.